and we try to learn something from it, try to preach it. Pray you'd help everybody to be attentive, to be focused. Lord, help us to be able to not belabor any point, but just to to be able to get in it, learn something, and and, uh, and maybe leave here a little different than we came. Lord, we love you so much. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Alright, so we're there in Genesis chapter number 9. I'd like to just show you a verse real quick. Keep your spot there in Genesis 9 because we're going to be going back there. But go with me, please, to the New Testament, to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, and I just want to show you one verse. 2 Peter chapter number 2. 2 Peter chapter number 2. And look at verse number 5. In the Old Testament, 2 Peter chapter number 2. And look at verse number 5. The Bible says, this is speaking about Noah, it says... And spared not, talking about God, it said, and spared not the old world. It's talking about God's judgment. And, and if you read the text there, it's talking about how he didn't spare certain people. And it says, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, the only thing I wanted you to see from there, and you can go back to Genesis chapter number 9, is that the Bible refers to the pre-flood world as the old world. The pre-flood world is referred to in the Bible as the old world. It says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So God calls that pre-flood world the old world. With that said, you know, uh, and the Bible doesn't specifically call, call it this, but, but something I'm going to call it for the purpose of the sermon, is that the post-flood world, or the world after the Noahic worldwide flood, uh, could be considered, I guess, kind of the new world. Now, I don't, I don't want to confuse you. This is this new world that I'm talking about is not to be confused with the new earth of Revelation 21.1. You don't have to turn there, but Revelation 21.1 is, uh, in the book of Revelations, a prophecy, and it talks about, uh, I'll read it for you, Revelation 21.1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So, eventually, one day, the Bible says that God is going to destroy the earth with fire. Uh, he, and we see, we'll see here that God promises Noah that He won't destroy the earth with water, with a flood anymore. But He will destroy the earth eventually, one day, with fire. And He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Now, that new heaven and the new earth are going to be totally new creations. The new world that I'm talking about right now is not a new creation. It's just the old world being changed after the flood. And I want to preach a sermon or kind of a Bible study over the subject here of this new world. Because the new world was different than the world. You know, the world had changed from the moment that Noah and uh, his wife and his three sons and the three uh, uh, wives of the sons there entered the ark and the time they spent on the ark, when they got off the ark, they got off onto a whole new world. The world was completely different. And we preached an entire sermon uh, last Sunday night about the Noahic flood and we looked at a lot of uh, what uh, uh, creation scientists believe and, and we looked at a lot of interesting things. Um, so we're, we're not going to get into all of that uh, Tonight, but I do want to talk about just that the, when Noah got off this ark, it was a different world. It was a different world. What had changed? Well, we talked about last week. We'll just talk about it briefly. The climate had changed. Uh, Genesis chapter number 8, if you're in chapter 9, if you look at Genesis chapter number 8 and verse 22 quickly, the Bible says, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not see. So the first time in the Bible we find that there's a reference made to cold and heat, or summer and winter. Uh, cold or, or, or uh, 
uh, weather is after the Noahic flood. And I was sharing with you last week, and again, this is just a theory that a lot of creation scientists believe, but we, I was telling you about how many creation scientists will believe that a meteor hit the earth, and when it hit the earth, it actually caused the earth to be at the, at the slant or at the tilt that it is now, which science tells us that is the reason we have uh, the different climates. About, uh, science tells us that if the earth was uh, straight, you know, and it wasn't at a tilt, that we would actually have like a tropical climate in the entire world, and that would make sense, you know, when God created the heavens and the earth, that, you know, so I, I, I guess I tend to believe that. Somebody asked me this week, um, said, well, is there any biblical proof that a meteor hit the earth? And, you know, I was thinking about Genesis, and I said, you know, I don't think so, but I, I didn't think about this. I told my wife this, and I, and I should study it out, and if I find something, I'll let you know, but... The Bible has many random verses in like Psalms and Proverbs and different places where it talks about the creation or the foundation of the earth or stuff. So Genesis doesn't necessarily tell us, give us any indication that there might have been a meteor that hit uh, earth other than the fact that it does tell us that something caused uh, that, that canopy of water that we saw in Genesis to, you know, uh, what God refers to as opening up the, the windows of heaven. And something caused the waters from the deep to gush out. And something caused the weather change pattern. So other than that, um, there's not anything really. But I, I'm going to study it out because I, I haven't looked at different passages that talk about creation in the rest of the Bible. And there might be something. If there is, I'll, I'll, I'll get that to you guys. And I don't know, maybe you're not interested in that. But I, I'm very interested. I think it's, it's interesting things. But uh, we, we see that the climate had changed. Um, surely we see that the ocean, you know, I don't know what the old world had as far as oceans and rivers and seas and stuff like that, but definitely there was a lot more water on earth, obviously. I mean, the earth was just flooding, and I'm sure oceans were created at this time, um, you know, because the water had to recede into a certain area, so pretty much the low ends of the, of the planet became the oceans, and the higher plains became what we're known today as continents. So that was different. You know, what, what else? Well, it was obviously a more desolate place. Uh, there's only eight people alive now on, on planet Earth. Um, there wasn't any people there. Many people, many creation scientists believe, we didn't get into this last week, but they believe that, that the Earth was relatively uh, flat. Uh, I'm not talking about flat like, you know, they used to believe in the old days where the earth was flat. But I'm saying as far as like not many mountains, not many hills, or if any mountains or hills. And it wasn't until the Noahic flood that those mountains and those canyons uh, were formed. And there's a lot of science that can go back, uh, can go into that. But things like the Grand Canyon, you know, they tell us that the Grand Canyon was formed because of a river flowing through it. Um, I, was, I was listening to somebody or reading somebody uh, talk about how like that, that would be impossible because the way the river flows into the Grand Canyon, it doesn't flow into a way that it would form the Grand Canyon. So something else had to form the Grand Canyon. Well, what could have so much power that would form, you know, something so big, uh, you know, and obviously the, the Noe flood, the, the, the water is gushing out of the deep and stuff, that, that could have been that. So, you know, this world they came out of uh, had mountains and had uh, canyons. It had a different landscape. It, it was a different world. And they came on, onto this new world, but when they came off the ark, and they came to this new world. I mean, now they don't have this water above the firmament that we saw in Genesis 1, that you know, we, we call the, the, uh, the canopy. And, and now they, they have these mountains, and now they have these oceans, and now they're, they're, they're more desolate. And, and as they come onto this new world, God changes a few things. And that's what I want to show you tonight. I want to show you a few things found in the passage we read of things that God changed. So with the new world came um, new rules. With the new world came new rules. Look at Genesis chapter number 9 and look at verse number 2. Genesis chapter number 9 and look at verse 2. With the new world came new rules. Genesis chapter number 9 and look at verse 2. The Bible says, And the fear of you 
And the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hands are they delivered. Look what it says in verse 3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. Now something you've got to understand, to be able to understand, well how, how does this change? If you go back to Genesis chapter number 1 with me, and look at verse number 29. Genesis chapter number 1, and look at verse number 29. The Bible says, Genesis chapter number 1 and verse 29, the Bible says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth. And every tree in the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. And look what he says, to you it shall be for meat. So according to Genesis chapter number 1 and verse 29, at the beginning, in the creation, God had made everybody to be vegetarians. The Bible says that He made, He gave them of every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, of every tree in the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. So they were able to eat anything off of plant life. They could eat uh, vegetables, they could eat fruit, anything that grew on a tree or anything that grew, uh, that, had, that, that bore seed, that was something that they could eat. The Bible says this, to you it shall be for me. Now I'm just going to give you this as information for you. When the Bible uses the word meat, that, that, that word meat uh, that was used, that, that English word meat that was used when the King James Bible was translated back in 1611 is not the same word meat as we use today. Uh, that word meat would be our modern day word for food. All right? Our word meat today in the Bible, the, the word they used was flesh. Does that make sense? So today we would say meat referring to like a steak or referring to like a hamburger. Well, in the Bible, in 1611, they would have used the word flesh. And they would use the word meat, just generally talking about food in general. If you remember in the book of Leviticus, it talks about the meat offering. And if you study the meat offering, all it is is, you know, oil and flour and, you know, butter or salt. I don't even remember. But uh, there's no meat, you know, attached to it. I remember when Moses was a, was a baby. I don't know if, if Michelle probably remembers this, but Moses' baby, we would, he'd come over and he was, well, not maybe like two or three years old, he'd come over and ask him, what's your favorite type of food? And he'd say, meat. And he'd always say, meat's my favorite food. And I, I like that, because uh, I like meat. But, but I don't want you to get confused, because God just told him, hey, you can eat of all the, all, all the vegetables, you can eat of all the fruit, and he said, it'll be meat for you. So don't get confused there. That word meat, when it was translated in 1611, meant food. So God told him, you can eat vegetables and you can eat fruit, you can eat any type of plant life, anything that grows from a plant, anything that grows from a tree, that's going to be food for you. But when they got off the ark after the Noahic flood, now God changed a few rules and He said, hey, you can eat of any of the animals. He said, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as a green herb have I given uh, you all things. So that's something very interesting to know that the Bible says that, notice He didn't take back the old rule. In Genesis 1.29, he said, hey, you can have of any meat, you, uh, of any tree, of any fruit, you can have anything you want. It's all for you. And in Genesis 9, 2 and 3, he says, now I'm adding on to that, you can eat any type of animal. You can have any type of meat that you'd like. You know, and it's interesting today that our government tries to take away from human beings, from, from men who were created from God. Our government today tries to take those things that God has given us. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, we live in a society where, you know, you got to get all sorts of permits. If I want to take my son fishing, I've got to go get a fishing license. If I want to take my kids hunting, I've got to go get a hunting license. You know, you got to, we just had this proposition in, in California uh, 
about you know raising the fees to be able to enter into state parks and and they 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 make you pay to go to, to these national forests and stuff like that you know and it's like who are they to you know honestly who are they to tell us what we can or cannot do or where we can or cannot go or what we can or cannot eat because God said hey, I have given you every animal he said have dominion over the animals eat whatever uh, vegetable you want eat whatever fruit you want eat whatever you want just do it God said hey I've given it to you there's a new rule for this new world. He said, just eat away. You know, and we live in the society where the government just tries to act like as if it's God and tries to take God's position when God already told us that we can, hey, you know what? I advocate a government where I can just kill an animal and eat it. You know, we, we recently found out about a, a church not too far from here where they had, and I'm not saying this is the brightest thing to do and I don't know that I would, you know, do this or whatever, but, but they had a, a men's camping trip and this is, you know, a good church, Fundamental Baptist, King James, whatever, and they had a men's camping trip and, and the men were getting, you know, and how men are. Men are dumb. And then you get a bunch of guy, men together and, and they start, you know, and they bring their guns and they bring their camouflage and, and I guess they brought some rabbits and they, and they, you know, killed the rabbits and cooked them over a fire and they had them for dinner at this man's camping trip. And somebody, some liberal or somebody got, some disgruntled church member found out about it and they called the police and they, you know, and they're getting like sued or got all this uh, police paperwork having to do now because of, you know, whatever. And it's like, you know, God has given us animals to eat. Just eat meat, you know. Be like Moses. What's your favorite food? Meat. You know, because God, the Bible says that God has given us, you know, and I just believe that, the, you know, if God gives us a right, that right was given to, you know, like the, like the, um, Declaration of Independence that I just lost train of thought. You know, we were created and we were endowed by God and, and we were endowed and we were given rights that, that were given to us not by government but by God. And, you know, and, but we, have the, we live in this government that just tries to control us as if they're God. And it's not right. Because God said, hey, I have given every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. He doesn't say go get a permit. He doesn't say go get a license. He just says it's for you. Eat it. He said, I've given it to you even as green herbs. And you know what? Let me tell you this. And just hear me out when I say this because I, I probably shouldn't even mention this but hear me out when I say this because I just want to get you to, to think and open up your mind to a different way of thinking I guess but if you notice he said he said even as the green herb have I given so he said you can eat any type of meat in the same way that I told you you can eat any type of you know and, and uh, just recently here in, in California we, we voted on this uh, marijuana bill you know, and they were trying to, to pass that bill. And look, let me tell you something. You, I don't, you know, you've never met someone more conservative than, than the guy you're looking at right now. And, and, and maybe you've met somebody as conservative, but not more conservative. No, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm against it. If, I, if I'm against anything, I'm against all of it. And I don't think that people should be out smoking pot, and I understand it ruins lives, and I understand all that. But you know what? If you think about it, though, on a biblical, if you look at it on a, on a biblical way, and look, I agree that it is wrong to smoke, you know, pot, and it, and it's, you know, kids shouldn't do it, and nobody should do it, and it's gonna kill your brain cells, waste. But you, hey, you know what? I'm against drinking alcohol, and I'm against all, all the other stuff too. So, um, so I'm not being hypocritical. But if you think about it, you know, who is the government to tell us what we can and cannot do? If somebody wants to ruin their lives, you know, and I'm not advocating it. I mean, it, I'm telling you this: if you smoke pot, you will ruin your life. It will ruin your life. But why does the government feel like they have the right to tell people what they can and cannot do? You, you see what I'm saying? Why, do, why does the government feel like they have the right to charge me $300 to, 
to be able to drive a vehicle. It's like, you know, you got to have this license and you got to have this permit. You gotta, they, they like just give you a permission to like live. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've heard of, I have a guy that I, uh, I work with and he said he got pulled over. He, he was riding a bicycle. He was going to, his na- to help his elderly uh, neighbor who lives down the street fix her car because her car had broken down. He was driving a bicycle and he had a backpack on with tools in the backpack. He was going to, you know, he didn't bring his, his, his license. He forgot his driver's license, but he thought, I'm not driving. I'm on a bicycle, so it's not that big of a deal. The police, they saw him, and I guess they just thought he was suspicious, and they pulled him over or whatever. And they held him for two hours, and the biggest problem was that he didn't have government ID. You know, he didn't have, not, not government ID, but he didn't have a driver's license. And he said, I'm like, well, I'm not driving. I'm not driving a vehicle. But you know, we just have this mentality where like the government, like you have to have their identification card. You, you have to get the government's permission to live. And it's just not right. Because God has, God has tells us things all over the scriptures. And you know, and whatever, you know, whatever you think about that, that's fine. It's just brought in your mind and, and give you something to think about. God said, eat whatever meat you want. God said, eat whatever vegetable you want. God said, do what you want. I've given it to you. And anybody who puts themselves over the authority of God and says, well, yeah, the Bible says you can go hunt whenever you want, but we're going to tell you you can only hunt this type of animal during this season. Well, look, that's not what the Bible says. So you just put yourself before God. And our government is always uh, doing stuff like that. So as Christians, we should be aware of that because we should always have God as the authority. You know, we ought to obey men, you know, God rather than men. I'm not advocating to go, you know, start some illegal hunting ring or something. I'm just... You know, something to think about. So anyway, that was a rule that changed in the new world. One of the new rules was that they could eat meat. Another rule was that they could not eat blood. They could not eat blood. Look at Genesis chapter number 9 and look at verse 4. Now he just told them you can eat meat, but he's going to give them a rule that comes with eating that meat. And look at verse 4. The Bible says, But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. So God told them, okay, you can eat, you can eat meat. But he said, when you're going to eat the flesh, I don't want you to eat the blood. He said, because the blood is the life thereof. And he said, I don't want you to eat that blood with that flesh. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read a verse for you. Leviticus chapter number 17, and look at verse number 11. Leviticus chapter number 17, and look at verse number 11. Or Don't look at it, I'll just read it for you. The Bible says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the souls. Now, according to the Bible, think about this. According to the Bible, which is written thousands of years ago, I mean, Genesis and Leviticus were literally written thousands of years ago. The Bible says that the life is in the blood. But you know this? Modern science has just recently caught up to the Bible. You know, they tell us that, oh, you believe in that book and it's parables and it's stories and it's fables and there's no science and evolution is scientific when we know it's not. But you know that modern science has, has just recently caught up to that in the last couple hundred years? As, reason, as recent as the early days of our country, did you know that they would, when someone was sick, they thought the problem if somebody was sick was their blood and they would literally try to suck out the blood of the people and many people died? You know, our, our first president, uh, President George Washington, that's how he died. They, they, he, he was sick, and they thought, well, the problem's in the blood, uh, so we got to suck out that blood. And they actually hooked a bunch of leeches on him and literally sucked the blood out of him, and he died. That's, that's how George Washington died. And that was a very well-known medical practice at that time. I mean, that was, what, 200 years ago? You know, just a little bit over 200 years ago? When the entire time in Genesis and Leviticus, the Bible tells us, hey, look, life 
of the flesh is in the blood. If they would have just read their Bibles, they would have known, hey, let's not suck the blood out of that guy because that's what, you know, that's how he's alive. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So, God said, don't eat the blood. You know, so every time I go to a restaurant and they ask me, how do you want that hamburger? Well done. <laughs> you know, I just want it well done. I don't want any blood. Pour the blood out because God said, I've got some rules for you. You can eat meat. Meat, eat whatever you want, eat the, whatever flesh you want, just don't eat the blood. Not only that, another rule, a new rule for the new world was that God established the death penalty. God established the death penalty. Look at verse number 5 in Genesis chapter number 9. Look at verse number 5, Genesis 9.5. It says, And surely your blood and your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require, and at the hand of man... At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Look at verse number 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of Christians out there, and I don't really understand it. But I hear of a lot of Christians who are, who are just completely against the death penalty. And it makes no sense because God established the death penalty. The death penalty was established by God. Genesis chapter number 9, verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And then he tells us why. Why is it so important to, to, to have the death penalty? Because he says men are a value. People are a value. He says, for in the image of God made he man. He said, you're not an animal. He said, kill an animal, I don't care. Just don't eat the, the blood. But he said, but if you kill a man, he said, by men... Are we, you know, we're going to take care of that person. We're going to have the death penalty. He said, because man was made in the image of God. We, you know, and, and again, something about our society. People have this mentality where, where we, we think that animals are like equal to God or to, to man. And we almost treat some animals as uh, in, in the same level as man. And God said, no, that's not so. Man was made in the image of God. An animal is just an animal. And look, I'm not saying we should be cruel to animals or anything like that. But look, a dog is just a dog. And a human being, there is value to that human's life. And God established in Genesis chapter 9, and verse 6, he, he established that death penalty. Now you've got to ask, well, why did He do that? And we'll answer that. If you look at Genesis chapter number 4, and you look at verse number 12, we'll see a progression from the beginning of the world up to right, you know, after the flood. Look at Genesis chapter number 4 and look at verse 12. Genesis chapter number 4, like verse 12. We preached the entire sermon on this when we were in Genesis 4. Uh, but we find here that Cain murdered his brother Abel. And this was the very first murder that had ever happened. Look at verse 12. The Bible says, This was God's punishment on Cain. He said, When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from the face and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the e on the east of Eden. So we find here Cain commits the first murder. He kills his brother Abel. And what is the punishment that God gives Cain? Exile. Do you see that? He makes him a fugitive and a vagabond. 
He makes him leave the presence of the rest of the people. He makes him leave Eden, because remember, they were... Eden was like in the area they lived in. Originally they were in the garden that was in Eden, the garden of Eden, but they got kicked out of the garden of Eden, but they were still living in Eden. But then he had to go live in Nod, which was on the east of Eden, because he was exiled from the people because he killed a man. That was the punishment that God gave him. He said, look, you're going to have to leave. And he was saying, hey, my punishment is too hard. People are going to find me, they're going to slay him, slay me. And God made Cain this problem in his, in his mercy and love, even to a sinner like Cain. He said, well, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So when, the, when Cain committed the first murder, the punishment was exile, and he was sent away from everybody else. We'll look at verse number 23 in Genesis chapter number 4. Look at verse 23 in Genesis chapter number 4. We find the second murder in uh, sense of creation. In Genesis chapter number 4, like verse 23, the Bible says, And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, by the way, the first time we see somebody in the Bible having more than one wife, he says, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, Hearken unto my speech. It says, For I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. Now you've got to follow what's going on here. Cain was completely not justified in what he did. I mean, when he killed Abel, there was no reason for it. He was just did it out of anger and jealousy, and the punishment that he was given was exile. Well, Lamech, who was a descendant of Cain, later on, he kills a man, but he justifies himself. He says, look, he says, look I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. So he said, I killed a man, but the man that I killed, he at least wounded me. He hurt me, so I killed him. And then he justifies himself by comparing himself to Cain. He says, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, because that's what God said, he said, then truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. So, God in His mercy told Cain, you committed murder, I'm just going to exile you. But then Lamech comes along and he uses that example to justify himself. He says, look, I'm not as bad as Cain. And if, if Cain is going to be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 70, 70 and sevenfold. Well, let's see what kept going. Look at Genesis chapter number 6 and look at verse number 11. Genesis chapter number 6 and look at verse number 11. Now we're right at before the flood. And look at what God says. Genesis chapter number 6 and verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with... Do you see what that word says? Violence. The Bible says the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth. And behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we get, so follow the progression with me. Cain murders a man, and he doesn't get the death penalty, he gets exiled. Lamech kills a man, and he says, Well, I wasn't as bad as as uh, Cain was. So if God's going to avenge Cain sevenfold, then truly uh, Lamech, 70... Uh, what was the terminology used there? 70-fold. Um, right. And, and then just a few generations later, right before the flood, God looked down at the earth and He said, Man, the, the whole earth is just filled with violence. The whole earth is just filled with crime. The whole earth is just filled with, with corruptness and with sin. So God decided... After the flood, when they came off the ark, he said, Noah, this is a new world, this is a new beginning, this is a new start, and we're just going to have some new rules. Here are the rules. You can eat the animals, don't eat the blood. But here's another rule. When somebody kills somebody, 
You need to kill them. And he established the death penalty. And here's the purpose. Because when somebody performs a crime that requires the death penalty, and they're not punished swiftly, society goes down the drain. Violence takes over the world. And you know what? God is for the death penalty. And not, not only is God for the death penalty, God created the death penalty. And I hear Christians today saying, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't be for the death penalty. And they don't read the Bibles. And, you know, they use verses from um, that, things that Jesus said and they take them out of context and they're, you know. But God is the one who established the death penalty. And God is for the death penalty. And God is for the death penalty not in the way that the state of California is for the death penalty. You say, man, this is a very political sermon. I, I don't know. I, I don't know why I'm talking a lot about this day. It just uh, comes into my mind a lot. But, you know, I, I think about the state of California. In the state of California, quote-unquote, we have capital punishment. Supposedly. You know, here's what we have, though. We pay for capital punishment. We pay taxes for capital punishment. Uh, just a few weeks, you know, a few weeks ago, it was all over the news that we 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 uh, built a new facility to be able to uh, have capital punishment. We built a new millions of dollars worth of death row facility to be able to house people on death row and keep them secure. We we paid millions of dollars in taxes as Californians in order to be able to pay for the facility to house uh, inmates on death row in order to. Uh, build a brand new facility to be able to, uh, you know, kill somebody uh, if, they, if, they're, if, if that's what they're found, you know, through the court system that they need to, to be murdered. Um, we have thousands of, you know, we have people going to court and getting tried and then they appeal and they appeal and they appeal and that costs money. And we have every step of the death penalty except this. This is the only part of the death penalty that the state of California, I mean, we've got the facilities, we've got the court hearings, we've got the appeals, we've got the money spent, we've got everything taken care of except this one thing. We never actually kill anybody. We never actually murder anybody. Nobody ever is actually put to death. And I, I was listening to the to the news a few weeks ago. And they were talking about how they built this new facility, and they had this one guy, and they were going to ready to put him that put him to death. And then they and then everybody they looked around and said, "Oh, you know what? We haven't purchased any of the lethal injection. Like we built the facility, we built everything, we we raised the money, and we passed it through the laws. And then they just forgot, you know. And like, I guess we won't do it." You know, and we keep these people on death row for 30 or 40 years, and they have, you know, they just live these nice lives. They, they go to college, and while they're, while they're there in prison, and they have, you know, three meals. And, and in the state of California, we have every single part of the capital punishment, except that last part. We never actually put anybody to death. And God is not for that. When God said, hey, God, God wants swift punishment. Obviously, you, you need to be careful. You need to make sure people are tried. You need to make sure that it's the right person. But he says, hey, just take care of it. Get it done. And here's why. Because when people do wrong and they're never punished, other evil people look at them and say, well, I can get away with it too. And if you have a society, and God said, when you let Cain murder and just exile him and don't take care of him, he says, here's what happened. In generations to come, you're just going to have a whole entire world full of violence. So he said, Noah... Let's just take care of this right now. If a man sheds another man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. He said, I'm establishing right now the death penalty. I want you to take care of it. And as a Christian, you should be all for the death penalty because God invented the death penalty. It wasn't made by man. It was made by God. So, you know, and, and, and that's and, and the problem. You know, I, I, I really truly feel like we... The issues we have in our society today, a lot of kids get into drugs and alcohol and they get into uh, criminal lives themselves because maybe they've been done wrong or 
they've been hurt or they've been, you know, had somebody violate them and that person who deserved to be put to death never got put to death and because they never had that closure, then we just have a society of criminals. And now we live in a society where we have, you know, kids going off the deep end. And let me tell you something. If we, if we brought back the death penalty, I know we have it in theory, but if we brought it back to where we were actually putting people to death, um, we, would, we would be much better as a society for it. And we would save a lot of money, too, as a, as a state. You know, we wouldn't have to pay for all these people to have art classes while they're in, you know, on death row. So anyway, so we saw there the new rules. God established new rules for the new world. Not only did God establish new rules for the new world, but He also established uh, a new covenant. A new covenant for the new world. Look at Genesis chapter number 9, look at verse number 8. Genesis chapter number 9, and look at verse number 8. The Bible says, And God spake unto Noah, and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth, and I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud. Now what is he talking about? He's talking about the rainbow. If you remember... We saw last week in Genesis in, in Hebrews chapter number 11 that when it rained uh, there for Noah, that was the first time it ever rained. It never rained before. We saw in Genesis that before the, the way the earth got watered, the Bible says that a mist came up from the ground and it watered the entire earth. In, in Genesis 11, the Bible makes it very clear that Noah had never seen, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, Noah had never seen rain. And you know, you know, when do we see a rainbow? After it's rained. You know, and there's all sorts of science that goes with it. You know, the water and crystals in the air and the way the light shines on it. We see this rainbow, whatever. But we see a rainbow after, after the flood, so, uh, after the rain. So since it was the first time it ever rained, you've got to imagine that it's the first time Noah ever saw a rainbow. And God comes in and tells him, hey, look, I'm setting this rainbow in the air as a covenant. This is a token of the covenant which I make between me and you and the living creature that is with you for a perpetual generation. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for you a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature, uh, creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is a token of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is upon the earth. So God said, because you've got to imagine, I mean, just think about Noah. He's never seen rain. He's never seen a cloud come up and start raining. God floods the entire earth, destroys everybody. You've got to imagine, the next time Noah sees a cloud roll up, he's probably going to start getting scared. I mean, what did you think? What did you, I mean, if you were Noah, and you've never seen it rain, the first time you saw it rain, God killed everybody on the earth, what did you think the next time you see a cloud, a dark cloud come and start sprinkling, you start getting scared, you think to yourself, man, where's that ark, you know? I mean, is God going to flood the earth again? So God takes care of that, and He says, hey, Noah... Don't you worry, the next, you know, it's going to rain on earth from now on. This is one of the things that changed with this new world. But when you see the cloud come, and you see that rainbow, just remember the covenant. I'm not going to destroy the earth with a flood anymore. You don't have to be scared. Now what does that 
rainbow represent? Well, here's what it represents. You remember last week we talked about how the ark represented Jesus Christ, and we went through there and showed a whole list of different things. The ark that that were represented Jesus Christ, and now they had to get in the ark in order to be saved from the judgment. And in the same way, we have to get in Jesus Christ in order to be saved from the coming judgment. Well, the ark represents Jesus Christ. The ark represents salvation. The rainbow represents eternal security. Think about it. The, the, God destroyed the earth because the earth was corrupt, because the earth was filled with violence, because the earth was filled with sin. But when they got on the ark, they didn't have to be judged for that sin. Was Noah a sinner? Yes. We're going to see that you know, next week. Were his sons sinners? Yes. Was his wife a sinner? Yes. Were the girls that the sons married sinners? Yes. But when they got on the ark, they weren't judged for their sins. And hey, you're a sinner and I'm a sinner, but when I trusted and put my faith in Jesus Christ and I got on the ark of Jesus Christ, I won't be judged for my sins either. But here's the thing. I will never be judged for my sins. So when the cloud, cloud rolls up, Noah, hey, you got on the ark already, you don't have to worry. The rainbow represented eternal security of saying, hey, no, you got on the ark, you're good to go. I'm not going to judge you for your sin. I'm not going to destroy the earth for your sin. He said, I made this covenant. It's a new covenant. A new world had a new covenant. You know, today, the queers in America take God's symbol, which God made in Genesis, and use it for themselves. I'm sure you're familiar with that. But the homosexual movement in this country uses that symbol of the rainbow as their homosexual symbol. And I was, I was talking to somebody and they made this point. I thought it was interesting. You know, it, it might be because what does the rainbow represent? It represents that God will not judge you. It represents that God will not destroy you for your sin. And it just might be that the homosexual agenda chose that rainbow almost as just... Uh, putting out there that, look, God is not going to judge us for this wicked sin of ours. God is not going to destroy us. And uh, many of them just don't believe in God or maybe whatever. But look, here, here's the difference. Here's what they, if that is true, and that's what they're doing, they chose that rainbow, and they're just trying to put it out there saying, because what, 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 what do the queers say? What do they always say when they're, you know, they say, God made us this way. You know, we were born this way. God made us this way. God's not going to judge. So if they, may, if they put that rainbow, you know, on their car, or they fly that rainbow flag, and they try to say, hey, well, this is, God's not going to judge me for this, because this is how I was born, or this is how I was made. Well, look, here's the difference. The rainbow was a good thing for Noah. Why? Because Noah had first got on the ark. Does that make sense? Noah got on the ark. When he got off the ark, he, God was telling him, look, Noah, you initially got on the ark, so you don't have to worry. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ever going to judge you. So the point is, the rainbow is a good sign for you if you've been on the ark. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, hey, God will not judge you for your sin. But the difference between these homosexuals and these queers in this country is that they've never gone on the ark. They've never trusted in Jesus. They've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible calls them reprobates. The Bible says that they... that it's a sin and it's wicked. And hey, let me tell you something. They can't... you know, you can't take God's rainbow and say, hey God, you can't judge me because the prerequisite to having the rainbow is that you first have to get on the ark. You know, so if you've been on the ark, that's a great testimony. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, if you've been on the ark of Jesus Christ, then you know that God is not, is not going to judge you because He gave you eternal life. He gave you eternal security and that's what that rainbow represents. The ark represents Jesus Christ. The rainbow represents eternal security that comes with Jesus Christ. The rainbow is God's promise to Noah that He won't judge him for his sin anymore. 
The rainbow, which is God's promise of not being judged for sin, only helps you if you've been on the ark, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the rainbow means nothing. Eternal security means nothing to somebody who has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we saw there that God gave them a new world. He gave them new rules for the new world. He gave them a new covenant for the new world. And I want you to see one, the third thing and we'll be done. He gave them a new start in the new world. A new start in the new world. Look at Genesis chapter number 9 and look at verse number 1. Genesis chapter number 9 and look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Now he uses that word replenish, because he's saying, hey, fill it again. And look at verse number 7 in the same chapter. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. Now I want you to notice something. Go back to Genesis chapter number 1. Genesis chapter number 1 and look at verse number 27. Genesis chapter number 1 and look at verse number 27. It's very interesting. Genesis chapter number 1 and look at verse number 27. The Bible says, So God created man in his own image. We're reading here when God created man, the sixth day. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Look what God said unto them, to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and, look what it says, replenish the earth. Why did God tell Adam and Eve, who had never filled the earth to begin with, to replenish the earth? Because he's saying, hey look, it's just a constant process. Keep replenishing. Keep replenishing it. So he told them, replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish, the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb, bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, which is a which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for me. But if you notice, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's exactly what he told Noah in Genesis 9.1. He said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. What can we learn from this? Well, Genesis chapter number 1, the earth was just created. Adam and Eve were just getting started. And God gives him the uh, commandment, and he says, the very first commandment that he ever gave mankind there, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And in Genesis 9-1, after God destroyed the earth, and Noah gets off the ark, God gives him the exact same instructions, the exact same commandment, the exact same verbiage. He says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. What was God saying? God, I, to me, it seemed like I was saying, hey, we're starting over right now, Noah. Noah, we're in a new world. Noah, we have new rules. Noah, we have a new covenant. And Noah, we have a new start. And you know what? I like a God that allows you to start over. I like a start that give, a God that gives you a new start. And that's the God of the Bible. God will give you a new start if you seek it. I'd, I'd like you to just look at a couple verses and we'll be done. Uh, in the Old Testament, I'd like you to look at the uh, book of Lamentations. Lamentations. Lamentations chapter number 3. If you find there Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, which are the big books in the big uh, Old Testament books there, prophets, Lamentations is a very small book that will be right behind the book of Jeremiah. 
in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Lamentations. Chapter number 3, and look at verse number 22. Lamentations, chapter number 3, and look at verse number 22. Lamentations, chapter number 3, verse 22. Oh, and let me, let, before we even read that verse, let me just make this point. God told Noah, be, and God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. If you're married, you know, obviously that's a prerequisite. God wants you to have children. You know, today we, you, you, you listen to people talk, you know, listen to young married couples and they say, we're not ready to have kids. You know, we want to have kids when we're, you know, 60 or something. They just want, and they say, we, you know, because they're selfish. And people, tell, people will even tell you, you know, I'm too selfish to have a child. I've got all these things I want to do. I want to, uh, you know, buy, have this car and have this toy and have this and go here and go there. And they're too selfish to have children. But God says that He wants you, He said, hey, He says, be fruitful and multiply. He said, replenish the earth. Do it again. And, and let me tell you something. Our society goes around making these statements saying, oh, don't you know the world is overpopulated? The world is not overpopulated. The world is not overpopulated. Maybe it's overpopulated where you live. Because everybody wants to live in New York City. Everybody wants to live in Los Angeles. You know, but if you drive from here to Los Angeles, you will see that the world is not overpopulated. I mean, there's a lot of space on planet Earth. And the world's not overpopulated. God wants you to have children. Have as many children as you want. It's a good thing to have kids. They're a blessing from God. The Bible says that children are like an arrow. And he says that the person that has their quiver full of them is blessed. So he says, have arrows, have kids, they're good for you. But he said, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth. So look at Lamentations chapter number 3 and look at verse 22. Lamentations chapter number 3 and look at verse 22. The Bible says, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because His compassions fail not. And look what verse 23 says. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Bible says that it's by the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed because His compassions, they fail not. And the Bible says that God's mercies and God's compassions, they are new every morning. And He says, great is thy faithfulness. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was looking into this program. Uh, my wife and I were, I was looking at it for myself. I can't remember what it's called. My wife would remember. My wife's listening through the monitor right now. If you remember, tell me. No, I'm just joking. It's fine. It doesn't matter. But it, it's this program, and, and I heard of somebody doing this. Um, I heard of a pastor doing this, and I thought, man, it might be something I want to do. But there's this, this program where people change their sleeping patterns. I don't know if you ever heard of this. But what they'll do is that they'll, instead of sleep, you know, like the normal person will lay down at night and sleep, you know, seven hours, eight hours, nine hours, whatever. Well, some people, what they'll do is instead of sleeping a full night, you know, getting a full night's rest, instead what they'll do is that they'll sleep six, they'll take six 30-minute naps throughout the day, you know, separated over, you know, four hours or five hours or whatever. So they never actually go to bed for the night. You know, they just go for four hours, take a 30-minute nap, go for another four or five hours, take a 30-minute nap, go for another five hours, you know, whatever. Now, obviously, you, know, you say, well, why would somebody do that? Well, the benefit to that is that you, you're only sleeping, you know, four hours a day. So that opens up your schedule a lot because you have like 20 hours to, to do things, you know, and I, I really feel like, like I'm really busy and I don't have enough time. I was like, man, people do this? You know, is it something, you know, my wife and I looked into it and we you know, pretty much came to the conclusion that it's probably not the healthiest thing to do, you know, um, to, to be doing that. But what, you know, you know, honestly, when we're looking into it and we're thinking, man, it's something I want to do, and I realize I'm, 
I'm too lazy to do something like that. I mean, I would lay down for my first 30 minute naps. I'd wake up 12 hours later and be like, oh man, I messed up, you know. But, um, you know, the, the worst part of, of doing something like that, which I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, if somebody does that, that they're wrong or whatever. But you know what I didn't like about that? Was this. There's no, there's no end to the day. You know what I'm saying? Like you just go through life. You lay down, and look, if, if, you, if people can do that, then, you know, I guess more power to them. I mean, they're very, they're, they're getting a lot of work done, because they have 20 hours a day to be able to do things. I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with that. But, but what, personally, what I didn't like about that is that there's just no end to the day. You know, you lay down for a nap, and then you get up 30 minutes later, and it's like the days roll into each other. You know what I'm saying? And there's something to be said about just turning off the lights, you know, getting into your pajamas, going to bed, and just finishing a day. Because, you know, there are some days that just need to end. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had a day like that where, like, this, this day just needs to end. Or this month just needs to end. Or this year just needs to end. But God is the God of new beginnings. And the Bible says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. And He says, They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God said His mercies, God says His compassion, and the morning when you wake up, if, if you have breath, you know, and you can stand up, then God has given you another chance to be able to do something else for Him. God has given you another more mercy, and God has given you more compassion. And God looked at Noah when he got off the ark, and he said, Noah, this is a new world, and this is a new territory, and, the, and things are different, and I'm going to give you new rules, and I'm going to give you a new covenant, but along with that, Noah, I'm going to give you a new start. So we can start over Noah. And we can try to make things better than what we have done. And God is just the God of a new morning. A new beginning. That's why, you know, that's why I love the new year. Because you can just end one year and start a new one fresh. And it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So we find in Genesis chapter number 9... That God established, you know, he, the Bible never refers to the post-flood world as the new world. That's kind of the name I gave it. But it does refer to the pre-flood world as the old world. So that's why I refer to it as new world. But we find in this new world that Noah, when he stepped off the ark and he found this new adventure in this new world, God gave him new rules, God gave him a new covenant, and God gave him a new start. And you know, those are all things that, that teach us something about God. That teach us that God is the type of God where, look, He'll, he'll let you start over. You said, I messed up. Just start over. Just go to sleep. Wake up the next day and say, I have a new mercies. I have new compassions. I have a new beginning. Every morning, I can get up and have a fresh start. And that is the God of the Bible. He's the God of the second chance. Now, many times, He's not the God of the third chance or the fourth chance or the, you know, 10,000th chance, but He is the God of the second chance. And, and those are just a few lessons, you know. Uh, tonight's sermon was more... Uh, you know, on Sunday nights, I feel like I'm always just screaming and yelling about something. Tonight's sermon is more, I guess, like a Bible study a little bit. But uh, just some things we can learn about God there and, and, and the things He established for Noah and when He stepped off the ark. So let's just go ahead and have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love You so much.